this evening as we pick up in Isaiah chapter 14, uh, verse 12, uh, you remember if you were with us last time, and if not, let me just give a brief recap to kind of get a running start with a runway to where we're going this evening and in the next number of chapters ahead. Isaiah chapter 13 begins a section where basically from chapters 13 for about the next 11 chapters, God by his spirit is pronouncing, if you would, judgments against the different Gentile nations. Uh, A lot of the prophecy obviously is directed towards the people of Israel, but in this section, God is also holding to account the other Gentile nations who were around at this time and also who at times were interacting with the nation of Israel, whether uh, harassing them or bringing punishment against them, even sometimes as an instrument of the Lord when God's people needed discipline. And so chapter 13 uh, through the next 11 chapters are, as I said last time, there, there's some difficult ground to cover. Uh, it's tough finding some applicable things uh, in the midst of these sections of Scripture. It's times like this that it's very good to remind ourselves that 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 tells us that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it is profitable for doctrine and reproof and correction and in training or instruction in righteousness so that as men and women of God, we can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Uh, and there are sections in the Word of God that it's like a, what, what your thing is, it's like a hot fudge sundae, uh, or it's that very appetizing filet mignon, and you could sit down and take in as much as you want, and it's wonderful. And then there are other sections that are a little bit more like asparagus or broccoli or uh, cauliflower, and I think it's important to remember that just like in our natural diet, If you want to be healthy, you've got to have a well-balanced diet. And you can eat tons of junk food. You can eat your favorite meal all the time, and that may be more enjoyable and pleasurable, but it honestly isn't going to be the best for your overall health. It's a well-balanced diet that leads to good health in our bodies. And the same thing is true spiritually, and the same thing is true with knowing the entirety of of God's word and taking in the entirety of it. And so in sections like this, we remind ourselves of those very things, that all of this is inspired by the Spirit. It has an intended purpose. It is still good, incorruptible, Spirit-inspired seed of the word of God that we're sowing down into our souls. And I I just want to say this as a precursor as we go through these chapters together. And of course, last week, you know, kind of beginning this section together, uh, you know, it is times like this that you folks thoroughly encourage me (laughs) because in a congregation of people who know it is our practice and commitment to go through the entirety of the word of God and to exposit line by line and precept upon precept from Genesis to Revelation and a commitment to honor all of God's word and digest of all of God's word. You know, these are occasions where it's very easy to kind of read ahead and go, yeah, don't we have something to do next Wednesday evening and maybe the next three Wednesday evenings and then the fourth we'll go back and by then maybe we'll get into some of the the more digestible stuff of the book of Isaiah. And so these are the times where I have to honor the Lord in my commitment to teach the entirety of the word of God, believing its truth. But these are times where you as well show incredible spiritual maturity 
uh, and a desire for the word of God and that you believe that God speaks through his word and his word is valuable. And so I just say kudos to you uh, that you're here on a Wednesday evening knowing what sections we're going through. And I, I say that as uh, you know, a compliment and it's, it's an admirable thing. And, and I appreciate and you encourage me as a brother and a sister in Christ to see your desire to be in the word of God and study through these sections of scripture as well. Chapter 13 began... The first burden that was pronounced, and particularly chapters 13 and 14, God's pronouncing a judgment against the people of Babylon, the nation of Babylon, and he began to take up this burden. If you look back at chapter 13, verse 1, particularly, it began by telling us that this was the burden against Babylon, which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw. So again, remember, these are things Isaiah somehow He's seeing these things. There's a, a vision that's being given to him in the supernatural, and he's then pronouncing these judgments, and this heavy burden is on his heart, and he moves from the burden of Babylon, and then he talks about the burdens of numerous different nations we'll see as we work our way through these things. As we come to chapter 15, he's going to then take up the burden against Moab, burden against Tyre, and, and other nations as well, Damascus, we'll see. But as we were going through chapter 13 and partway into 14, he's now speaking about this burden, a judgment against the nation of Babylon and the king of Babylon, particularly how he was so uh, cruel and harsh in the way that he was treating God's people at the time when God was using even Babylon as an instrument, that he was very harsh and very cruel in his activities. Now, as we come to verse 12, and we kind of purposely, it just seemed like a good stopping spot as our time expired last time. Remember, as we said, and, and this is true with all the prophetic books, because God is the eternal God, he dwells outside of time. So from God's perspective, everything is present, right? He's the great I am, right? He's the God who was, who is, who is to come. He spans all of time and eternity. He's the great I am. He lives outside of time. So in the same way that we may see if we were watching a parade and we're on the corner of, you know, whatever, Fifth and Asbury, and so we can see only a certain amount from Fifth and Asbury on that corner, uh, God sees the whole parade. He sees everything. He sees its starting point. He sees everything along, and he sees all the way where the end of it is too. And so when God speaks through his servants and prophetically these prophetic messages that we get, understand is the eternal God, everything to him is present. So sometimes God will speak of an event through the prophet that's for the very near future or the current time period historically. And then sometimes in the next breath or the next verse, God goes from the microscopic view looking very close and, and, and right in front of them. And then he just takes a telescopic view and he zooms all the way down to the end of the age. And he begins to speak about things maybe in the next verse or the next breath that sometimes take us all the way down to the end times or even as far out as the second coming of Christ or the kingdom age. And so we do have that back and forth. Now, with that understanding, as we come to verse 12, I believe my personal conviction, to me it seems very evident, that in verse 12, the prophet begins to transition now from speaking about the king of Babylon himself, the personage of the king of Babylon in that time period historically, and now he begins to speak in another layer about the spiritual king or ruler, if you would, that was inspiring the human king of Babylon. 
the spiritual ruler himself, who we know, of course, as Satan or the devil, who is at times the evil ruler who is behind, directing behind the scenes in the spiritual realm, a lot of the evil and horrific things that happen in the natural realm through human beings who are not submitted to God. And so I think verse 12 and downward here, we're getting a direct reference to things about Satan himself. Isaiah chapter 14, and as I said also, Ezekiel 28 are two of the key passages from the Old Testament that tell us a lot about the enemy of our soul and allow us to understand things about him. So we pick up looking at this, and then we'll kind of get into some of the judgments where it's a little more tedious and wrap up our time together. But verse 12 tells us of chapter 14, how you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, how you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend to the heights of the clouds and I will be like the most high. So what no doubt is being described here is often what we refer to as the, the fall of Satan. Uh, again, Jesus in Luke chapter 10, verse 18, talked about how he saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. So he uses the same idea Jesus does as God, describing the fall of Satan from a heightened position falling. And, and here, the Bible uses this same language here, how you are fallen, verse 12, from heaven. Again, Ezekiel 28 tells us together with this and other passages, we know that Lucifer, which means the, the shining one or the bright one, uh, is a cherub. He's one of the angelic uh, order classifications of angels and initially had this high classification as a holy and a good and righteous angel, but pride, as you can see in our verses, and self-will took over the heart of Satan and acting in self-will and pride that's what led to his demise and to his fall, where he fell from that exalted position and then became what we often refer to then as a demon or an unclean spirit. And the Bible tells us, Revelation as well, that he drew away one-third of the angelic realm after him, which have now become the demonic realm among the spiritual realm of angels and demons, as we often would refer to them. And here the Bible is describing the fall of Lucifer when he says, O Lucifer, son of the morning, how you are cut down to the ground, referring to his initial fall that is falling from his exalted position into his demonic, unclean spirit now that he's now in. He says, verse 13, of what happened, for you have said in your heart, and notice now these five I will statements. That's what we really want to notice above anything else, I think, in the midst of this. He said, notice, I will ascend, I will exalt my throne. So again, he already had a degree of power, but notice now he wants more power. He's not content with the great power. I mean, Satan already had a lot of power in his original position as Lucifer. Lucifer had a very high degree of power and authority. The problem was he was ambitious in his intentions and he wanted more authority. He wanted more power. He looked at the power and the authority that God had, and he said, I like that kind of power. 
Yes, this is a position that I've been given. I've been given a degree of responsibility and authority spiritually, but I want more. And he had a thirst for more power and a drive for more, if you would, control and wanted more position. And because of that, you can see what began to happen. He said, yes, I'm here, but I want to ascend higher. I want the highest position. I want to exalt my throne, he says, above the stars of God. Again, the stars of God is often an idiomatic reference in the Bible. We find it in Job and other places regarding the angelic realm. So he wants to be at the highest position possible. Perhaps, again, the idea is over Michael the archangel and some others that it seems had some higher degree of authority than him, though he had a very high position. He says, no, I want my throne to be at the highest point over all the angels. I will sit on the mount of the congregation that is over the multitude as their ruler on the farthest sides of the north, and I will ascend, he says, verse 14, to the heights of the clouds. In other words, I want to ascend, again, their second time, even higher than I already am. And then the end of verse 14, and I will be like the Most High. Now, what would make him like the Most High? That is, if he would have people bowing down to him, right? Serving him, worshiping him. And he saw that humanity worshiped God. He saw that man was made in the image and likeness of God and that man's intention and their proper design was to serve God, to follow God, to, to, to walk in relationship, but submission to God. And Satan saw that and he said, I'd like some of that. I want people to serve me. I want people to be under my control. I want to be able to rule over people and I want people to worship and give me glory. So he is thirsty for glory. He was thirsty for admiration and exaltation, and we can see in his language here the things that God says he was saying, I will ascend, I will exalt myself, I will ascend. So again, what he does is allows pride to infiltrate his heart, and he exercises self-will, and he rebels against the will of God. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. The problem is he didn't want God's will, he wanted his will. So the thing that was the plague in Satan's heart that caused his demise and his fall into his fallen condition and his demonic condition ultimately were basically, you could boil it down to two things, is he became filled with pride and he had a problem with exerting his own self-will to the exclusion of God's will. And because he was arrogant and full of pride, that's what made him not want God's will. He just wanted his will. I will have what I want because I want glory. I want admiration. I want power. I want control. I want attention. And look, this is important to recognize because this is the nature of our enemy, the enemy of our soul, and important to realize when Satan is trying to manipulate a human being or to work someone's mind, or to persuade someone's heart to get someone to rebel against God or God's will, these are the things that he tries to work inside of human beings, to get them to act in pride, and to get them to exert their own self-will over the will of God, to want their will more than the will of God. And we are never, folks, honestly, acting more like the devil than when we are being directed by a heart full of pride and we are asserting our will over the will of God. 
We are never acting more like the devil than when those two things are happening. Pride is a clear indication that the devil is at work in a situation and having his way. And when a person is saying, I honestly, now again, and they may not say this out loud. Notice he says, you have said in your heart. You know, most people probably aren't brazen enough to say, I don't want God's will. I want my will. But if we're discerning enough, sometimes we can step back with just a little bit of spiritual discernment from the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth, and say, what clearly you're basically saying is, you don't really want God's will. You just want your will. And so whatever it takes to get your will across, to get your will accomplished, and to get your way, it's pretty evident, just like Satan, that's what you're after. Now, the important thing to recognize is that never works out well. That didn't lead to Satan's ascension that led to Satan's what? Crash and burn. That's what led to him becoming completely defiled in every sense. It led to him becoming more disconnected from God than he had ever been since he was first created as an angel. All of this self-will and pride, verse 15, look what it says, yet you shall be brought down into Sheol, the place of the dead, to the lowest depths of the pit. Now, Satan says, I will exalt myself, I will ascend, I want to climb, and God says, those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And God used the illustration of Satan from the very start. Satan fell because not he tripped, he fell because he was brought down by God. God was the one that brought him down. God humbled him because of his pride and because of his self-exertion of his own will. And look, that happened initially. He fell from his exalted position. There's one fall of Satan. The book of Revelation also describes that even beyond him falling from his exalted position, that there will come a time when then he actually ends up being fallen from access to heaven because Job chapter one tells us that Satan currently still has access to heaven. So he lost his exalted position in heaven and he's roaming the earth and working, but Job indicates if he's there dialoguing with God, he still has a degree of being able to access heaven. He's the accuser of the brethren. He accuses you and I when we fail. He's there, in a sense, condemning us. And then Jesus is there as our advocate saying, case well put, Tony is an idiot. He's a selfish jerk. Yes, he did that dumb stuff. However, as his defense attorney, <laughs> I've paid the price for all of that. So Thank you for your accurate description of all the failures and sins of Tony. You are completely right. Your information is correct. But case dismissed because my blood has taken care of that. So there's the one fall of him from his position. The Bible describes there will come another time when then he is regulated just to the earth itself. But then ultimately the book of Revelation describes in chapter 20 as well that there's going to come a time when he actually is cast into a place called the bottomless pit, where ultimately he is bound for a thousand years during the time of the kingdom age, and then ultimately he is cast into, you see what it says there, the lowest pit, where he ultimately will be cast into the lake of fire, where it says the beast and the, uh, the false prophet and the antichrist are, where he will then forever uh, not be, listen, not controlling and ruling hell. Uh, we have this very bizarre idea. We think Satan is down there and he's the king on hell's throne and he's cranking his favorite music and throwing back the beers and you know telling everybody what to do. No, <laughs> he's going to be punished in hell. 
He's going to suffer the torment of hell forever because of what he did. Uh, he's not the one controlling hell. The Bible says that Jesus himself said you know, that, that hell was created for the devil and his angels. It wasn't even created for human beings. That's the ultimatum if somebody doesn't want to go to heaven. God has no other option than to send a person to hell. But hell initially was created for the devil and for his angelic rebellion with him to be punished eternally forever. So verse 16, I believe this is still referencing our adversary, Satan, Lucifer, the devil. He says, those who see you will gaze at you and consider you saying, and look at this now, is this the man the, who made the earth to tremble? who shook kingdoms, who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed its cities, who did not open the house of his prisoners. Now, now take notice, at some point, apparently, as he's cast down into the place of the dead, the realm of the dead, into Sheol, into hell itself, that, that as he's a defeated foe, that apparently he's going to be looked upon and people are going to gaze upon him and they're actually going to kind of scratch their heads and say, are you kidding me? You were the guy that caused all that chaos on the earth throughout human history? I mean, for real? How did you pull that off? Apparently, there's going to be kind of this recognition as they look upon him, look, that they're going to say to him, is this really the man who made the whole earth tremble? Is this really the one who managed to take the whole world and make it like a, a wilderness, miserable experience. He says, who was able to destroy prominent cities and who did not open the house of prisoners. This is the one who was behind keeping people prisoner to their sin and destructive habits. And, and there's going to be almost this kind of this, this shock as people see him, which to me, I think is a good reminder. Sometimes we give the devil way more credit than we should. He's not an equal to God. Very important that we recognize that. You know, sometimes we think like, you know, Batman and Joker or something like, you know, there's God and then there's the devil. No, you remember, there's God and then there's everything God created. There's creator God, all power omnipotent, and then there's everything that God created, all the angels, you and I as human beings. The devil is no match for God. He is a strong, mighty angel and we should never diminish that but we also should keep in proper balance. There's going to come a time where people are going to look at him and think, man, that guy was given way more power and authority than he ever should have had. How did he pull that off? How was he going about doing the things that he did? The idea is he didn't have to have that much havoc and destruction come to pass out of what he did. He could have been overcome. He could have been victoriously triumphed over if more would have known the power of God and walked in the victory of Jesus and the authority of Jesus that can subdue the power of the devil. But I do think it is interesting that, notice, the Bible gives us some indication, some of what the devil is doing throughout human history is, is he's working among the earth and working among the world. Two things you see in verse 17. Look what it says. He destroyed its cities. Always remember that. Look at certain cities. Look at certain urban environments, certain inner city situations, and you're thinking, what is happening? in these inner city situations, satanic warfare. That's what's happening there because Satan wants to destroy entire cities. He's not content with just destroying a life or destroying a marriage or destroying a family. We're destroying a church. He wants to destroy whole cities. He wants to wreak havoc on whole communities and he will work behind the scenes 
and people will think, well, it's, it's just this is the problem. That's the problem. The problem, if you look behind the curtain, is there's spiritual things that are going on that are causing people to act and behave in the ways they are and causing people to be kept as prisoners to certain lifestyles and destructive habits and keeping people in prison and shackled. That's a lot of what Satan wants to do. Now, as we come to verse 13, I think our camera kind of now goes back to the king of Babylon himself. I mean, this could still be some references to Lucifer the devil, but it seems now he kind of starts to come back to the present day again, to the king of Babylon in verse 18, all the kings of the nations, all of them sleep in glory. The idea is eventually their glory days, the sun sets on their glory days. Every nation has its time, a king has its time period, but his glory eventually fades. That's the reality of mankind. Everyone in his own house. But you, verse 19, are cast out of your grave like an abominable branch, like the garment of those who are slain, thrust through with a sword, who go down to the stones of the pit like a corpse trodden underfoot. The idea is that in time, the king of Babylon would himself fall from his great power and as we talked about, the Medo-Persians in one evening would come in and take over the entire Babylonian empire and power would change and the king would be dethroned rather quickly. Verse 20, you will not be joined with them in burial because you, he says, destroyed your land and have slain your people. The brood of evildoers shall never be named. Prepare the slaughter for his children because of the iniquity of their fathers, lest they rise up and possess the land and fill the face of the world with cities. So notice very clearly now he specifically references there uh, in our verses that he's now talking about the, the king of Babylon himself. You will be joined with them in burial, or you will, excuse me, you will not be joined with them in burial. And understand that that was an indication of disgrace. Because in the ancient culture, to not have your body buried, in their mind, that was an utter disgrace. And so understand from their perspective, that's the idea, is you will be disgraced, you won't even receive a proper burial. Notice, because you have destroyed your land and slain your people. And again, the picture here is, notice, this is how wicked of a king he was. You know you have a horrible ruler when the ruler is actually destroying their own people and ruining their own territory. Again, when a governmental ruler, a king, or any leader for that matter, is bringing more harm and destruction to the people they're leading, that's a bad leader. And so here, the king of Babylon is being held to account for this kind of very thing as God's indicting him with the judgment coming upon him. Verse 22, he says, For I will rise up against them, says the Lord of hosts, and cut off from Babylon the name and the remnant. So God would, in a way, through the Medo-Persians, very quickly he'd cut off the people of Babylon. They would no longer be a world empire. Their season would come to an end. Their remnant would be destroyed. An offspring and posterity, says the Lord. And I will make it a possession for the porcupine and marshes of muddy water, and sweep it, the idea is sweep it clean, with a broom of destruction, says the Lord of hosts. Now, I don't know what God's broom of destruction is, but I don't want to get swept away <laughs> by God's broom of destruction. 
And he's probably got numerous brooms with the way he can do it. But that's how easily God, when he wants to judge and deal with something, God says, don't make me take out my broom. If I get out my dustpan, that's it. That's the end. And he says, with the broom of destruction, I'm going to wipe you clean and bring judgment against your pride and the things that you were doing. He describes how the land will be left desolate. We saw some of that in our last chapters and referenced some of that, that the land did ultimately become very desolate, and it sits very desolate, the land of Babylon, historically even to this day. Verse 24, the Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, surely as I have thought it, so it shall come to pass. As I have purposed it, so it shall stand. So notice, why was this going to happen? Why was it guaranteed? No matter what it looked like, because understand, at the time that Isaiah was saying these things, I, I said this in our study last time together, he's speaking these things prophetically, historically, at this time period that he's saying this, Babylon hasn't even come to world power yet. They're still just a nation. The Assyrians are the current world empire. So God's talking about things that are going to happen in Babylon, not only their rise to power, but then ultimately their demise and their judgment before they've even become the next world empire. But again, God's the eternal God. And God says, do you know how I can assure you that these things are going to come to pass? Because he says, verse, 19, or verse 24, surely as I have thought it and I have purposed it, so it shall come to pass and so it shall stand. In other words, God says, because it's what's on my mind and because it's what my purpose is, you can take it to the bank. It's going to happen. And how wonderful to know as we watch things unfold, you know, on national levels and local levels and our personal lives and situations to realize that even when people are doing things, rebelling against God, acting in certain ways, look, God's never out of control. God is still ultimately going to orchestrate what he wants and make things work in accordance with his will. And it's not like God gets caught in a situation, how did they outsmart me on that one? That's not going to happen. God says, what I have thought and what I have purposed, it will come to pass. And it's going to stand. And no human interference is going to stop that ultimately. And that's an encouraging thing to know. Again, whether we're looking at things on the world stage in our own personal lives to realize that the thoughts of God and the purposes of God are going to come to pass. And that's going to stand. No matter who tries to go against it, it will ultimately stand if it's God's purpose and intention. Verse 25, and that I will break, and notice now he goes back to the Assyrian. Again, because that's the current empire right now historically, that I will break the Assyrian, God says, in my land, and on my mountains tread him underfoot. Then his yoke shall be removed from them, his burden removed from their shoulders. So notice God's a, a burden lifter. He's able to take the yoke of bondage and the heavy burdens. He's saying, I'm going to take that off of my people, even though the Assyrians were trying to put a heavy burden upon them to rule over them. This is the purpose, verse 26, go back to the same idea here. This is the purpose that is purposed against the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? Again, God says, if I've purposed it, I have the power to perform it. 
And God says, when I reach out my hand and my hand begins to work in a situation, God says, nobody's going to knock my hand out of the way. If my hand is at work in a situation and my hand is upon a life or my hand is involved in a situation, God says, nobody's going to move my hand out of the way. Nobody's going to strong arm God. God has ways to do whatever God needs to do. And he says very here clearly, the Lord of hosts has purposed. Who's going to annul it? My hand is stretched out, God says. Who's going to turn my hand back? Well, it's great to have that confidence to know that if God be for us, who can be against us, right? Or another way of thinking of that is who cares? That's true as well, right? Because God is for us. And, and we can trust that and know if God's hand is upon our life, we're confident and certain in that. Verse 28, and this is the burden which came in the year that King Ahaz died. He was the, the king in, in Judah at that time. Do not rejoice. Now he references all you of Philistia, the people of the Philistines, because the rod that struck you is broken. For out of the serpent's roots will come forth a viper, that is something worse than the original snake, an even worse viper will come up, and its offspring will be a fiery flying serpent. The firstborn of the poor will feed, and the needy will lie down in safety, and I will kill your roots, he says to the people of Philistia, with famine, as starvation would set in against them nationally, and I will slay your remnant, that is the small remnant was left. God says, that small remnant is going to be done away with. Wail, O gate, O cry, O city, all you of Philistia are dissolved, for the smoke will come from the north, referring to the Assyrians coming down. And what he's basically saying is, look, just because the Assyrians came down from the north and they conquered the northern kingdom, Judah was overcome and they got out of it. Uh, ultimately, God is basically saying to them, no one alone is in his appointed times. In essence, what God's conveying in these verses is, look, you may have initially eluded the Assyrians from conquering you, but God says, don't be overly confident because when you see what's coming afterwards, that's going to be your demise. And so basically what God was conveying to Philistia here, to the people of Philistia, is uh, they may have temporarily eluded the consequences of their own wrongdoing, but God says nobody gets away ultimately. So God's telling the people of Philistia, don't go getting proud and thinking you outsmarted God. You may have eluded the initial attack, but God says what's coming is going to be way worse. It's just going to be a little bit further down the road. And so I think it's a good reminder sometimes, again, because sometimes we can make the mistake in our lives. You know, people think, oh, they got away with something, or oh, that's not fair, they got away with that. No, they're just running out of time. They're just running out of time because God, God judges time morally. And God told the Philistines, listen, you may have got away initially, but there's something even worse, he says, coming down the road. Verse 32, he says, what will they answer the messengers of the nation? The Lord has founded Zion, Jerusalem, and the poor of his people shall take refuge in it. And again, just referring back to how God would miraculously, though the northern kingdom was conquered, Assyria would come, they would besiege the city of Jerusalem, they would bring great devastation, and it would look like they were going to conquer Judah, the southern kingdom as well. But remember, God, that one night, would send out one angel that would slay 185,000 Assyrian troops, and God would miraculously intervene, preserve Judah and the southern kingdom, and they would last a little longer historically, 
ultimately the Babylonians would come in and conquer them, but God would miraculously preserve his people there in Zion. Now, chapter 15 gives to us the burden against Moab, and we're going to mercifully try and work our way. They're short chapters and, as I said, tedious through 15 and 16 very briefly here. This is God's burden, his judgment against the people of Moab. And let me just give a quick synopsis. Moab, remember, are a people that come as the ancestors of Lot. From the book of Genesis, if you remember Lot, after he escaped Sodom and Gomorrah, his daughters got him drunk. They ended up having sexual relations with their father, and out of an incestuous relationship with their drunk father came the people of, as descendants of that birth that happened. The one daughter was impregnated and gave birth to a child named Moab, which became the people of Moab, the other Ammon, and of course, the people of Moab, as you can tell, did not have the greatest, if you would, heritage nor do they have the greatest recognition among the people of God because the Jews looked them as a people with a very polluted ancestral line. They were birthed from incest early on, and the Moabites often became people who at times, though they had some degree of connection to the Jews and the nation of Israel, they didn't always treat them as favorably as they could have. Uh, they were on the other side of the Jordan River, what we would refer to as the eastern side. Remember where the two and a half tribes chose to dwell outside of the land? And so Moab was kind of, if you know where the Dead Sea is, they were directly to the southeast of that. Ammon was above them. Edom was below them. And Ammon, Moab, and Edom became the area that we know today as the area of modern-day Jordan. Uh, so this is the territory that God's referring to and the people of Moab. And he says to them regarding the judgment that would come against the people of Moab, because in the night, verse 1, Ar, which was the capital of Moab, is laid waste and destroyed, because in the night, Kir of Moab is laid waste and destroyed. So when the destruction of the Assyrians came strong through the land in one night, they also wreaked havoc against the people of Moab in that territory as they came across and in one night, literally, the capital city, as well as the city of Kir, were very quickly laid waste and destroyed. Verse 2, he's gone up to the temple of Diban, to the high places to weep, that is going to seek their own gods, their pagan gods. They worship the god Chemosh. Moab will wail over Nebo and over Mediba. On all their heads will be baldness and every beard cut off. Now, again, remember, we're not talking about natural baldness here. When typically someone was disgraced in that culture, their head would be shaved, a man's beard would be shaved. That was a way of humiliating someone when you wanted to disgrace them. Uh, so what's being described here is when they were conquered and shamed, how their heads would be shaved, left with baldness, their beards cut off. It was a way of showing power over the enemy when you did such to the men in the land. And in their streets, they will clothe themselves with sackcloth. Remember, those were the itchy garments of mourning and grief because of the great devastation and loss. On the tops of the houses and in their streets, everyone will wail, verse 3, weeping bitterly. The idea is because of the great loss of life and bloodshed. Heshbon and Elielah will cry out. Those were territories in the far north of Moab that were conquered. Their voice shall be heard as far as Jahaz, and that was a territory in the south of Moab. So the idea here is 
from north to south, a total conquest. They were very quickly taken over. Therefore, the armed soldiers of Moab will cry out. His life will be burdensome to him. And my heart will cry out from Moab. His fugitives shall flee to Zoar. Now, that's another territory in the area now in Edom. So it's picturing fleeing south from Moab down into Edom, trying to find refuge. Like a three-year-old heifer for the ascent of Lohuth, they will go up with weeping for in the way of Horonim, they will raise up a cry of destruction for the waters of Nimrim will be desolate, for the green pastures, or the green grass, excuse me, has withered away, the grass falls, uh, and there is nothing. Now, again, the picture there, the Assyrians, when they would come in, and they were a vicious, barbaric people. If you study the Assyrians, I mean, the things that they would do to people, they would conquer a territory, they would decapitate the heads of all the people, and they would stack their skulls out front of the city gate to basically convey to any passerbys who would go through, this is what happens if you don't submit to the Assyrian Empire. Uh, when they would take people away captive, they would put large hooks either under the jaw and into and through the mouth or up through the nose uh, or the tongue area, and they would pull the captives along back to their land in this very cruel and barbaric way. One of the things they would often do as well, which is described here in verse 6, is they would go through and they would cut off all the waterways so that it would cost all of the, the grass and all of the you know, foliage and the fields, everything would die off and fail and wither, and so the people would be starved out. Uh, and he's just describing the tactics that the Assyrians would use to conquer people in the midst of their cruel conquest. Therefore, the abundance they have gained, he says, and what they have laid up, they will carry away to the brook of the willows. For the cry has gone, verse 8, all around the borders of Moab, its wailing to Igleim, his wailing to Beir Elim. You know where all these places are, right? That's what a map's for. None of them are the same places today anyway. For the waters of Demon will be, look at the, the carnage here, the waters of Demon will be full of blood. So imagine your streams, your, your, your rivers, so much bloodshed, literally running red with the blood of all the carnage of the people murdered and, and, and gr greatly abused. Because I will bring more upon Demon, lions upon him who escaped from Moab and on the remnant of the land. Now, again, God's describing the horrific conquest that would come upon Moab and it would be a great bloody conquest that the Assyrians would bring in their barbaric cruelty. Now let me, if I could, just before we touch upon chapter 16 briefly, can I draw your attention if I could, look at back at the beginning of verse 5. God's saying all this is coming against them, but look also at the heart of God in verse 5. God says, my heart will cry for Moab. Do you see the love of God for the world? God says, all of these horrific things are coming upon you, and they are just righteous judgment that your nation deserves. But God also says, but my heart is grieved that this judgment is coming upon these people. God loved the people of Moab. He doesn't just love Israel. He doesn't just love the Jews. He doesn't just love Christians. God loves the world, right? We have to remember that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And we can look at nations today, right, that we 
have some opinions about. (laughs) And we would think, go for it, God. Judge him, God, which I think is pretty self-righteous and, if I could use a strong term, stupid, given the way that we function as Americans. You know, wasn't it Billy Graham said many, many years ago, we've probably all heard it, but for sake of reminder, if God doesn't judge America soon, he probably should apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. And we have to understand, God loves all nations. He loves all people groups. And his heart was broken and grieved, even though these were just judgments that were coming. Chapter 16 says, send out the lamb, continuing now with the burden against Moab, send out the lamb to the ruler of the land. The idea of sending a lamb is tribute to the ruler of the land, which would have been the king of Judah, from Selah to the wilderness, to the mount of the daughter of Zion, for it shall be as a wandering bird thrown out of the nest, so shall the daughters of Moab as the fords of Arnon. The fords of Arnon was the river, the river Arnon, which was one of the boundary lines of the people of Moab. Interesting, he says, from Selah over to the wilderness. Selah is a term which means rock, and it also is a term that is often used synonymously referred to the rock city of Petra which is in the area of Jordan, which makes up Ammon, Moab, and Edom. Now, as you go to verse 3, again, I believe what the Spirit of God is doing at this point now in verse 3 is, again, taking the camera lens and zooming it way out telescopically and referring to something in connection to a messianic prophecy, referring, of course, to our Lord Jesus Christ and the end of the age, Because verse 5 is very, very evident there's a reference here to Messiah going on. Now, I believe verses 3 and 4 are also in connection to that because look what he says here. Take counsel. I think this goes past the present age of the people of Moab historically then. Take counsel and execute judgment. Make your shadow like the night in the middle of the day. Hide the outcasts. Do not betray him who escapes. Now watch verse 4. This is God, first person. God says, let my outcasts. Who are God's outcasts? His people, the Jews, the nation of Israel. So God says, let my outcasts dwell with you, O Moab. Be a shelter to them from the face of the spoiler. From the extortioner is at an end. Devastation now ceases. The oppressors are consumed out of the land. And look at verse 5. Clearly, this is a messianic reference. In mercy, the throne will be, future tense, established. And one should be capitalized, the holy one, the righteous one, Jesus. And one will sit on it, that is the throne in truth, in the tabernacle of David, a reestablished worship center that will exist, the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking justice and hastening righteousness, that one is one day going to come, sit there upon a throne in Jerusalem, in the tabernacle of David, a rebuilt worship location for the people of God, and he will rule and execute just judgment, he will bring a past justice, and he will hasten or expedite righteous governance over the land at that time. Now, of course, we know that is exactly what Jesus is going to do, right, when Jesus returns in his second coming and sets up his kingdom uh, there in Jerusalem when he returns. Now, that being said, what then could possibly be the reference here in verse 
3 and 4, where God is saying to Moab, you who are going to flee, you who one day will be outcast yourself, God's saying now, and I think he's switching gears, he's saying, I want you to now embrace my outcasts. I want you to take in my outcasts and give them a shelter from the difficult things that my people, my outcasts will be going through, give them a shelter from the spoiler, someone who's coming in to try and spoil what God's doing, and the extortioner, someone who's trying to extort worship and extort God's authority and take advantage of as an oppressor the people of God and the authority of God, who will ultimately do that? Well, to me, the Antichrist. That's exactly what the Antichrist will do one day. Again, if I can quickly draw your attention by way of reference, Revelation chapter 12 describes a time when Satan's persecution will come very strongly against the Jews, particularly in the second half of the seven-year period of tribulation. That three and a half years into the tribulation, the Antichrist will turn the table on the Jews as a people after he initially establishes a peace treaty, lets them do what? rebuild their worship center, the temple there in the nation of Israel, and he will turn the tables and bring great persecution against them. Revelation 12 says this, now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman, referring to Israel, who gave birth to the male child, referring to Jesus. Jesus would be the child that would come from the nation of Israel. But the woman, referring to Israel, was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time, times, and a half a time from the presence of the serpent. Again, take notice there. For a period of time, the nation of Israel will be driven out of their land when the intensity of the persecution of the Antichrist comes against them. And God says they will flee to a wilderness location outside of their land to find refuge from the persecution that's satanically being inspired by the Antichrist. Jesus referred to the same thing in Matthew chapter 24, saying, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, Daniel 9, standing in the holy place, he says, let him understand, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So when the Antichrist walks into the reconstructed temple, or again, often we think of a temple, physical structure, interesting, the Holy Spirit describes here a tabernacle of David. Often we think, how are the Jews going to rebuild their temple? How's that all going to work? It may take years to construct a temple. What if it's just a tabernacle? That could happen in days, right? The tabernacle was a tent-like structure. Ultimately, the temple became a physical permanent structure, and I don't know. I'm just speculating. But if it's a quick thing, nonetheless, they set up their worship system again. Three and a half years in, the Antichrist goes in. He proclaims himself God. At that point, there's sacrilege, and he turns venomously against the Jews. They go fleeing to the wilderness, the Bible says, because of the great persecution against them. Daniel chapter 11 describes the Antichrist work this way, saying, Then the king shall do according to his own will, the Antichrist, exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and speak blasphemies against the god of gods. And he shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished for what has been determined shall be done. And then it says this, 
the Antichrist, he shall enter the glorious land, that's Israel, and many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall escape from his hand. Listen, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. So as he brings his intense persecution in the land of Israel, the Bible says that those who will be able to escape the Antichrist persecution specifically are able to escape Edom, Moab, and Ammon. What does ancient Edom, Moab, and Ammon make up? Modern-day Jordan. What's in modern-day Jordan? The rock city of Petra, which would be a perfect location as described here. Let my outcast dwell with you, O Moab, which is a part of the area of Jordan today, so that you can provide them a shelter from the face of that spoiler and that extortioner who's trying to extort worship from God and is greatly attacking them. So very likely that ultimately this area could be the area that God's people ultimately find themselves fleeing to. Well, let's finish up our chapter briefly. We have heard the pride of Moab that he is very proud, God says, of his haughtiness and his pride and his wrath, but he lies and shall not be so. Therefore, Moab shall wail for Moab, everyone shall wail. For the foundations of Kir, Haraseth shall mourn. Surely they are stricken. Again, realizing God's judgment coming upon them at that time severely. For the fields of Heshbon languish in great pain, the idea is. The vine of Sibma, the lords of the nations, has broken down its choice plants, which have reached to Jazir and wandered through the wilderness. Her branches are stretched out. They are gone over the sea, therefore I will bewail the vine of Sibma with the weeping of Jazir. I will drench you with my tears. Again, isn't that very uh, compassionate there? Again, God says, I will drench you with my tears. Again, the Bible says in Ezekiel, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God, again, his tears, he's weeping when judgment is falling. I will drench you with my tears, O Heshbon. And Elielah, for battle cries have fallen over your summer fruits and your harvest. Gladness is taken away and joy from the plentiful field. Again, God can very quickly take away joy and celebration from any nation when he lets his judgment fall. In the vineyards, there will be no singing anymore, God says, nor will there be shouting, verse 10, nor treaders will tread out the wine and the presses. I have made their shouting cease. Therefore, verse 11, my heart shall resound like a harp for Moab and my inner being for Kir Herez. And then back to what we saw earlier, the chapter concludes, look at verse 12, and it shall come to pass. When it is seen that Moab is weary on the high place, that he will come to his sanctuary to pray, but he will not prevail. So God says Moab can go and do all the praying that he wants to and try and stave off the consequence of the discipline and the judgment of God. He can go pray his heart out, but God says those prayers aren't going to prevail because my will is going to come to pass. 
and he must be held account for his pride heart and, and, and the nation must suffer what it had done. Again, God says he can pray all he wants, but it's not going to prevail. Judgment was going to fall. And God concludes by driving the, the nail home saying, verse 13, this is the word of the Lord, which he has spoken concerning Moab since that time. But now, verse 14, the Lord has spoken saying within three years, the idea is everything I just said, God says, Historically, God says, test me. Within three years, it'll happen. Within a three-year period, God says, it will all come to pass. As the years of a hired man, the glory of Moab will be despised, and all that great multitude and the remnant will be very small and feeble. And again, if you look at things chronologically, Isaiah prophesies these things historically around 704 B.C. It didn't even take God three years. By 702 B.C., the judgment had fallen against Moab. So again, God says, here's how you can know that this is certain. God says, I'll give you a timetable. <laughs> you can watch the calendar, God says. Within this period of time, it's going to come to pass because I've determined it. Didn't matter what man did, didn't matter what events unfolded, God was going to orchestrate his plan. And you know, as we look at such things, I think sometimes it is just a good reminder that what the Lord wants to come to pass, not only on this earth, but for your life, you can rest in that. And just rest in that. The Lord's hand is involved. His hand is upon your life. Jesus said, what doors he opens, no man can shut. What doors he shuts, no man can open. And you can rest. The Lord will do what the Lord's going to do, and we can trust and be confident in that.